many of us ever know what it is to become the perfect version of ourselves? This is Decoding Superhuman with your host, Boomer Anderson. Hey now, superhumans, Boomer Anderson here, back with another episode of the Decoding Superhuman podcast. If you can really translate audio quality to an emotion, you'd be able to see the smile on my face right now because I am elated with today's guest. It's a conversation that I've wanted to have for a very long time. Now, one of the focuses of this systems approach to health that I like to employ at Decoding Superhuman is movement. And one thing that has become particularly of interest of mine lately is movement efficiency and how to really get the most out of my workouts for the least amount of time. And when you put that question together and you put it into that Google machine, you immediately get one person's name. And that person is our guest on today's podcast. It is Dr. Doug McGuff. Yes, Dr. McGuff of Body by Science fame. I am absolutely thrilled that he's here today. So Dr. McGuff became interested in exercise at the age of 15, we have that in common, when he first read Arthur Jones' Nautilus Training Bulletin Number 2. His interest in exercise and biology led him to a career in medicine. In 1989, he graduated from the University of Texas Medical School, that's in San Antonio, and he went on to train emergency medicine at the University of Arkansas for medical science at Little Rock. That's where he served as chief resident. From there, he's been on the staff or the faculty at Wright State University's Emergency Medicine Residency, and he was the emergency staff physician at Wright-Patterson AFB Hospital. So he's got quite a lot of experience in this field of emergency medicine. But throughout his career, Dr. McGuff maintained his interest in high-intensity exercise. Doug realized a lifelong dream when he opened up Ultimate Exercise in 1997, in November that is, where he and his clients continue to explore the limits of exercise through the personal training efforts. In addition to his work at Ultimate Exercise, Dr. McGuff is a full-time practicing emergency physician. He lives in South Carolina with his wife of over 30 years, Wendy, and their children, Eric and Madeline. So what did we get into today? Because you could picture me like a kid in a toy store. I was so excited to have this conversation. So Dr. McGuff and I started off by talking about the stimulus organism response relationship. And if you're not familiar with that, I encourage you to just really listen to this entire podcast because I get to pick his brain about all aspects of that. We talk about the key questions to ask before embarking on any exercise regimen. And for those of you out there who have the aspirations, if you will, to be the Arnold Schwarzenegger, to be the, you know, Kenyan marathon runner, whatever it is, I encourage you to really just take a moment in self-reflection around our discussion with Dr. McGuff. We talk about why you shouldn't seek to become Arnold in the gym. We get into the Body by Science program, and this is an experiment that I'm going to run very soon, and stay tuned for that one. And we talk about why resistance training is the best training, hands down. Stick around to the end where Dr. McGuff explains the relationship between an economics textbook and physical exercise. There's lots of great resources in this one, frankly, lots of audio gold, and the show notes for this one can be found at decodingsuperhuman.com slash bodybyscience. Enjoy my episode with Dr. Doug McGuff.
The sponsor for today's podcast is Neurohacker Collective. The chairman, Jordan Greenhall, has been on the show to talk about one of my favorite topics and episodes to date, sovereignty. And the medical director has also been on the show to talk about unleashing your human potential through epigenetics. That's Dr. Daniel Stickler. But why do I love Neurohacker Collective so much? Well, frankly, it upgrades me on a day-to-day basis. Actually, I take their products five out of seven days of the week. Their original Qualia stack is something that I absolutely and still thoroughly enjoy. It's packed with over 40 premium brain nutrients to immediately enhance your focus, energy, mood, creativity, and all while supporting your health. Their new flagship nootropic, Qualia Mind, is a premium nootropic supplement that helps support mental performance and brain health. And frankly, with both products, I do not get the crashes that I commonly get with nootropics and other supplements. So I want you to go over to their website and check it out when you have a chance. It's neurohacker.com. And if you subscribe, you get 15% off by using the code BOOMER. If you want to just do a one-time purchase, you get 10% off, again, using that code BOOMER. And while you're there, pick up their free foundational guide to neurohacking. It's definitely worth checking out. But please, enjoy the show. Dr. McGuff, welcome to the show. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here. You know, this is an absolute pleasure uh, to talk to you because as I mentioned before when we were speaking, I'm about ready to jump into a, a body by science experiment of my own for quite a long time and I'm looking forward to it. So I had to ask you a bunch of questions, of course. All right, yeah, this is this is one of my favorite, of all the things I do, doing a podcast is just the, my favorite thing. So let, let's launch. All right, so Let's get started with something you really recently updated, which was the stimulus organism response. And I would love for you to just explain to the audience, for those who may not be familiar with, what what that is, and then what specifically about the organism really matters in that equation. Okay. Um, So first and foremost, I got to let everyone know I am in no means the originator of this concept. That probably was first germinated in the mind of Arthur Jones and then fully developed by uh, Ken Hutchins, who developed the super slow exercise protocol, which um, is fairly much the basis of our protocol. Um, But skipping to your question, um, the stimulants organism response relationship is something that has to be discussed when you discuss exercise because of how people naturally think about exercise. So the way most people will think about exercise or how you will, or just kind of naturally think about as you think of exercise is something that directly produces a response. You exercise to get a response. The ab roller will firm and tighten your abs kind of thing. And it's just a natural inclination, but to really understand how to apply exercise properly, you have to understand that there is a biologic equation going on that is the key to this process. So the first is that the exercise doesn't directly do anything to produce a response. What happens is the exercise is a stimulus. And to be a stimulus, something has to be sort of a threat to an animal, which is the organism, even if it's just a hormetic threat. Um, there is a stimulus that is received by the body. 
that is viewed in some way as threatful and therefore demands an adaptive response. So a stimulus, if it's of sufficient intensity, will act upon that organism. The organism will say, okay, I've received that stimulus and given enough time and resources, I will synthesize an adaptive response. So in the context of resistance exercise, or we can just call it exercise because exercise really just cannot occur without some form of resistance, however minimal, um, the stimulus is actually the fact that you are momentarily fatigued or weakened. You start at a certain level of strength or capability, and shortly thereafter, your strength and or capability has been diminished. And that's a threat that the organism receives. And the adaptive response is, I'm going to raise my strength or my ability to compensate for what I encountered so that the next time I encounter it, I have a buffer zone of reserve to serve as um, you know, a safety factor should I encounter that stimulus again. And then we just repeat that process over and over to produce a bigger and bigger adaptive response over time. But it's very key to have in your head that exercise is simply a stimulus or a tool to get your body to do something that you want it to do, but realize that that is coming out of the organism or out of your body. One of the things I've heard you speak about recently is this whole concept of organism and how when somebody is starting an exercise program, they should really take a deep dive into the organism first. Do you mind going into that a little bit? Because I think there's a lot of people out there that think they, they can be Brad Pitt and Fight Club or the Men's Health cover model. Do you mind delving into a little bit on what the exact organism study should be like? Sure. And, you know, and that discussion really is sort of heavily dependent upon self-reflection and getting a, a good handle on yourself and your own motivation. This recent reflection of mine was born out of years and years of focusing on the stimulus side of the equation, of trying to refine and adapt a protocol to give the most efficient stimulus possible. Having done that, we also had to focus on the adaptive response side of the equation where all the recovery and supercompensation is occurring. But in so doing, we kind of neglected the, the O in the middle, the organism. What you need to be doing is seeking self-actualization of your own organism, your own body, which has a specific um, genotype that will express itself optimally in a particular phenotype. But you have to go into the process with the intent of applying this to what I have, because that is all you have, and then seeing what the outcome's gonna be. You cannot go into this process with an idea of someone that you admire or a look that you would like to have or a capability that someone else has that you want to try to emulate or reproduce. That will fail every time. You have to go into the process with the idea is that I'm gonna take what I have in terms of my own genotype and seek its ideal phenotypic expression by applying a stimulus and allowing a response to occur. This is brilliant. I love it. I frankly wish I would have had this when I was six, well, 
even earlier than that, 12 years old and trying to be a bodybuilder. Uh, Dr. McGuff, one of the things before we get into the body by science protocol, which I, I have questions as to why that's the the ideal way to see what this organism looks like and what can do from a phenotypical standpoint. But before we get into that, on the response side, in terms of recovery, it's something that I've been focused on tremendously lately because I was one of those people that bought into the CrossFit world of let's kill ourselves, that kind of thing, which hopefully they're becoming better now. But some of the recovery, some things that you've mentioned previously in terms of recovery are areas or I guess you can call them, I don't know what to call them, organelles or something, like uh, myokines, I've heard you say before, as well as selective pro-absolving mediators. And I was wondering if you can just explain what those are, because those were of interest to me. Okay, but let's do this. Let's, let me back you up just a little bit, because you said some things here that triggered important things that I think your listeners need to hear, because you talked about being a 16-year-old boy and bodybuilders and expectations and things of that nature. And anyone embarking upon this kind of self-improvement or seeking these sort of adaptive responses, what I want you to know is that a lot of what you're looking out at out there, you're being lied to. And you're being lied to in a way that is massively damaging to your self-esteem. People that say they're natural aren't. People are cheating all the time. People are taking performance-enhancing drugs. People even, you don't just take a photo and put it up there. You like hit all the filters and you tune it up just so and make everything look just right. And I would tell people, if you're going to embark upon this sort of thing, you need to really limit your inputs. Don't pick up men's health at the grocery store and flip through it. Don't look on Instagram. Don't go on the internet. If you're going to start on this, focus on yourself and limit your inputs so that you can figure out what works for you. Because what works for someone else may not work for you at all. And if you're looking through these filters and through these lies, it's going to be horribly demotivating. And I think it's very important to kind of to, to move along from there. To answer your question further, I think that wrapped into recovery, we also have to address something that is part of the Western psyche, which is this Puritan work ethic that's wrapped into success. Okay, what's going to produce the most success for you in the gym will actually, if you were to videotape it and put it up on YouTube, looks like watching paint dry. Okay, it's not some really buff looking dude beating a tire with a sledgehammer and sweat flying everywhere. That's not the best way to go about it. And we conflate this puritanical work ethic with what's going to produce results. We are enshrining and glorifying suffering as a means of taking our adaptive response to put up to the world to say, look how great I am. Look what I've done. Look how I've suffered. If you look at any motivational video on YouTube, that is the message that's being delivered by that rather than what is necessary to produce the best result and what does it look like? No, it has to look like, you know, I'm not going to say names, but 
this guy who was an alcoholic but turned his life around by running a marathon every day of the week for 20 days or whatever. <laughs> you know, it's just like, oh my God, it's just so aggravating. And then also the conflated thing, and, and this is where CrossFit has really taken this as a marketing tool, is to take this whole special forces, special operator paradigm and wrap it into your strength and conditioning program. But what people don't understand is SEAL training is not done to produce an adaptive physical response. SEAL training is to figure out what kind of organism you are and whether you're an organism that can have the living flogged out of it and injured and be able to recover and carry on. It is not a conditioning program. It is a weeding out program. And I really think, and I've had some involvement in to a small extent in training some special operator type people, that those communities would do much better if they looked at the people that are going through the pipeline and instead of trying to wash them out, really trying to figure out how to best produce an adaptive response in the properly motivated individual, because I've seen so many people that would make much better operators that simply blew out a rotator cuff holding a telephone pole over their head. It was just dumb luck. But that kind of machismo gets wrapped into this physical conditioning paradigm so that if you do this sort of conditioning, you're going to get all of the luster and all of the glow of that kind of community rubbed off on you. And that's what CrossFit has been genius at doing. I mean, naming workouts after fallen war heroes and all this sort of stuff, you know, it, and this goes all the way back to, you know, Achilles and ancient Rome. And, but it, it's not how to get the best results. So there's a lot of really bad psychology wrapped into physical training that we got to clear the slate on before we can even address any of these more esoteric issues. So that's step one. So having said that, I know I just blew your question right out of the water. with all No, I, no I actually, I, I'm glad you took it the way you did. Now that we've said that, um, I'll let you lead from here and see if I can pick it up from that point. So let's go into that more, and I, I'm debating on where to take this because the response and the recovery and looking at that and how to optimize response and recovery and sort of some of the things that you monitor, uh, one of the areas of interest that I've heard you talk about before are those areas of myokines. Uh, do you mind explaining why that's significant for people, it's specifically when it comes to just this recovery and response area? Yeah, so early on in training, I think anyone that really got hooked by the, the weightlifting or the resistance training bug had some sort of generic sense that, yeah, what I'm after is bigger muscles and a better aesthetic and looking better. But in the process of doing so, I think anyone that was involved with it had to come away going, there's a lot more going on here inside the black box that I can't articulate. And we tried to articulate it by all sorts of mechanisms. Well, muscle is metabolically expensive tissue and it raises your basal metabolic rate 24-7 the entire week, month, year, and that's why your body composition improves so much and why you look at people in the aerobics room or on the treadmill at the gym and, you know, they all look, you know, like they just walked out of a health food store. They're all green and pale and weak and spindly. 
if you look at the guys over in the weightlifting section and the girls over in the weightlifting section, all those people look how you want to look and seem to be feeling how you'd like to feel. But what ended up happening is that skeletal muscle turned out to be so much more than just tissue that produced movement um, and that tissue that can produce movement against resistance. It turns out that the skeletal muscle system is the largest and most powerful endocrine organ in our whole body. So what an endocrine organ is, like your pancreas sending out insulin to control your blood sugar, is an organ that sends out chemical signals and chemical messages that orchestrates and directs the activity of other tissues in your body. And as it turns out, skeletal muscle, when it's contracting and when it's doing hard work, sends out cytokines or chemical messengers that signals all sorts of other body tissues. And this was first articulated by Ken Hutchins when he explained how going on a calorie deficit diet by itself or with aerobics versus with resistance training was different. So if you go, if you try to lose weight and you go on a calorie deficit diet and you just do the diet, what happens is your body is like a corporation with a board of directors. And you go to the board of directors and you say, oh my God, guys, we're in a bad budget deficit right now. What should we do? The board of directors looks and says, well, we got to do across the board cuts. So we're going to cut back in the muscle department. We're going to cut back in body fat department. We can't hold as much stored energy. We're going to cut back on nervous system. We're going to cut back on bone. We're going to cut back on brain tissue. You know, it, it's like um, it's like a fire sale. Everything's got to go. Versus you go to the board of directors, but now there is a big signal coming into the corporation that says, we need skeletal muscle. We've been more momentarily fatigued. We've been faced with this threat. So what ends up happening under this budget deficit is you go to the board of directors and say, okay, so we need to, we need to cut back on skeletal muscle. And I'm going to say, hmm. No way, can't do that. And you say, okay, we can cut back on nervous tissue. And they say, ah, can't do that because all this new skeletal muscle we lay down has to be innervated. Okay, so let's cut back on bone. No, we're going to have to actually, not only do we have to not cut back on nervous tissue, we have to hire more on. And not only can we not cut back on bone, we have to hire more on. And you keep going and going through all these different tissues, and then all you're left with is body fat. It's like, yep, we're just going to have to cut back out of our reserves, out of our energy reserves, because everything else we have to purchase to support the fact that we have to bring on a lot more muscle. So you produce a discriminated weight loss that is entirely shunted towards fat loss. And that's how he described that. And that's what myokines are doing. But it's even more powerful than he described, because we always think of our body is this unified cooperating machine, but all of the tissue of our body is encoded by the same DNA. So our body fat, to some extent, is in competition with our skeletal muscle and our bone and our nervous tissue. They are competing for scarce resources. They're competing for nutrient partitioning. So if you send the correct signals, then you're going to partition the nutrients in the way that's most favorable for your health. And I think the reason that skeletal muscle has such a profound signaling influence is that it's our most preserved biologic function. As animals, 
movement is our most preserved biologic function, and that comes from skeletal muscle. If we can't move, we can't get food, and we can't keep from becoming food. So wrapped into this whole thing on the organism response side of the equation is all this complex chemical signaling that's going on that favors movement towards your ideal phenotypic representation. So that's, that's kind of it in a nutshell. <laughs> that was absolutely brilliant analogy. A big-ass nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> it was brilliant, brilliant analogy. So speaking of ideal phenotypic expression, if you don't mind, I want to shift focus over to, to your book um, and really the focus of my experiment over the next couple of months, Embodied by Science. And do you mind, first, there may be listeners out there who haven't read the book, just explaining what the protocol is and why it's the most ideal way to, I guess, live your genetic potential, for lack of a better term? Sure. So um, I guess the best way to express it is, at its core, it's resistance exercise. And it is a means of invoking the basic stimulus. So if movement is our most preserved biologic function, and skeletal muscle produces movement and movement against resistance, then to produce adaptations, we have to invoke some sort of threat against that. So when you go and do any kind of exercise, let's say you're gonna go flip the tractor tire, beat the tire with a sledgehammer. Then as you do that, you invoke fatigue. You start off at a certain level of muscle strength. And when you're done, that strength has been diminished by a particular percentage. Now in that particular case, that has happened haphazardly and as a byproduct of the activity. A lot of the activity, a lot of the mechanical work that was done was thrown off in non-productive means. A lot of it was reverberation forces going up your bones and into your joints. A lot of it was acceleration forces experienced by your joints, um, particularly in vulnerable joint positions that can produce injury. So rather than being haphazard about producing this stimulus and hoping something just comes out on the other side, our approach is to be deliberate about that stimulus, identify the stimulus. So the stimulus is to take muscle and momentarily weaken it a very meaningful amount. So what we do instead is we look at the musculature that we want to address, say, what is its function in the body? So if we want to work you know, the pushing muscles of our upper body, our chest, deltoids, triceps, you look at your pectoralis muscle, it takes your humerus, moves it out in front of your body, and it adducts it, meaning moves it towards the midline of the body simultaneously as it's going out from the body. That's what the pectoralis does. Each muscle group has a specific function. So we wanna load it in the performance of that specific function because we have exposed it most aggressively to a resistance that it has to work against by doing that. And then we want to keep it under that load continuously so that it accumulates fatigue both aggressively and rapidly. So we are going to select a handful of movements to cover all the musculature of the body in a way that tracks muscle and joint function. So the muscle is always under continuous load of the weight 
it starts off at a certain certain level of strength but if you perform the resistance training in a certain method following muscle and joint function you're going to invoke this deep deep level of fatigue in a very short period of time and that has been coined by arthur jones ken hutchins other people we all refer to it as inroad which is the momentary weakening of muscle so how is it that you're going to produce that well, the best way to do it is so that you're under the continuous load of the weight. So what that means is you don't want to get the weight moving under its own momentum. You don't want to throw the weight. So you want to start moving the weight as gradually as you can so the resistance is on the loaded musculature. And if you start your movement as gradually as possible, what you will find is you will organically express a repetition cadence that may fall somewhere between four and 10 seconds, depending on the movement. So it's actually quite slow because what you're doing is you're depriving yourself of using momentum as a means of escaping the resistance. So let's say we're doing a chest press exercise at the gym. It can be a hammer strength, it can be a bench press, fill in the blank. You're going to start not by just jamming that thing up, and trying to get it moving. The purpose isn't to make the weight go from point A to point B. The purpose is to use the weight as a mechanism of fatiguing your muscle. So you're gonna start very gradually. You're gonna just compress the skin in your hands and the pads of your hands and keep advancing, keep advancing until the weight just starts moving. Once that started, you just push hard and smooth. And when you get Close to the end where your elbows are going to lock, you don't lock your elbows because you don't want to rest on bone on bone and take the tension off. You smoothly turn around, change directions, you come back down to the bottom, you barely touch, you barely start, and you just keep it moving in a continuous, slow, and smooth fashion. And what you'll find is as you do that, you can't escape the load of the resistance. And that recruits your muscle and fatigues it quickly. So in the course of 60 to 90 seconds, you're going to reduce the strength of that targeted musculature by at least 40%. So having decreased your strength that deeply, that quickly, the organism's looking at it like wrestling with a very equally matched opponent. And it's going to be like, holy cow my most basic biologic function was threatened because at the end of this, what happens, you keep going until you can't keep the resistance moving anymore. And what happens is when movement fails, that is a powerful biological signal that says, my most basic biologic function, the ability to move has been threatened by meeting this very equally matched opponent, literally yourself. So the adaptive response becomes, ooh, Next time, I'm going to be this percentage stronger. So if I ever encounter a struggle of that magnitude again, I will be able to win and I will have something left over. But then the next time, you just stair step up what's demanded of the musculature over and over again, and you get stronger over time. And that's the approach. The cool thing about the approach is it doesn't just produce adaptations in the skeletal muscle. It produces metabolic adaptations within the skeletal muscle that express itself everywhere in your body. So Dr. McGuff, question for you on something that you wrote in the book, which I found to be incredible, 
but I think a lot of people may find to be problematic, especially those that are doing Ironmans out there. Why do you say resistance training is the best exercise? And do you mind just going into how it can provide aerobic benefits as well? Sure. Um, you know, that's kind of a hard question to unwind without getting too long-winded. I'll try to do my best. But particularly as it relates to cardiovascular conditioning, the original exercise that, I mean, the original research that was done on exercise that brought us the conclusion that steady state low intensity exercise or endurance exercise was beneficial for the cardiovascular system was all predicated on using the only measuring tool they had at the time, which was VO2 max or measuring oxygen consumption. And that involved a tight fitting mask, long hoses to trap the gases and measure them, which by necessity required that the testing subject be in a stationary location. So you either had to be on a bicycle ergometer or a treadmill or something of that nature. And the equipment lended itself towards measuring steady state output. So at lower levels of exercise, you are delivering substrate to the mitochondria at a certain rate. Mitochondria is taking that substrate and in the presence of oxygen, metabolizing it to make ATP. And that concurred certain health benefits. The conclusion then became, because of the measuring tool, that anything that produced exercise of this intensity that emphasized the aerobic subsegment of metabolism was that which produced cardiovascular benefits, such that aerobics became known as cardio. That just became part of the zeitgeist. The real fact of the matter is, though, is that inside the cell, the cell's metabolism is sort of a blueprint of our evolutionary past. So in the primordial soup of the you know, early, early single-celled organisms, you had glucose being metabolized in the absence of oxygen through a 20-step process down to a chemical called pyruvate. And that's kind of how things went for a period of time. And those organisms could only get so big because you had to have an energy gradient across the cell membrane. Well, as you get bigger, your volume, if you're going to double your size, your volume increases by a factor of eight. Two times two times two is eight. But your surface area, that which creates the energy gradient, only increases two times two, four. So... If you double your size, your ability to generate energy drops by 50%. Over time, other organisms developed that created a cell membrane inside of a cell membrane that was all folded up on itself. So it had a lot more surface area to generate energy. These were little protobacteria, and they fed off the waste product of these single-celled organisms. And they could make a lot more energy because they had a lot more surface area because of everything folded inside this membrane inside of a membrane. Well, eventually those things infected these single-celled organisms and had a symbiotic relationship. Those became mitochondria. So that is the whole relationship between the anaerobic component of metabolism and the aerobic component of metabolism. So the only way to really ramp up the aerobic component of metabolism is to deliver substrate more quickly to it. So the only way to stimulate the aerobic subsegment of metabolism is by ramping the anaerobic portion of metabolism as fast and as aggressively as possible. 
So that's why we're finding now all these studies on high-intensity interval training producing equivalent aerobic adaptations in a four-minute Tabata protocol as you get from 45 minutes of steady state. Well, the same thing is true of resistance training. And what it comes down to is the way that you can get at that metabolism and make it crank as fast as possible to deliver substrate to the mitochondria is by doing mechanical work with muscle. That's the only way you can get at that system. It only stands to reason that the higher the quality of the mechanical work with muscle, the more you can invoke that entire process. And resistance training just happens to be the mechanism by which you can get the highest quality mechanical work with muscle to drive this whole process. Now, if we take, you know, Kenneth Cooper aerobic from Kenneth Cooper's aerobics from the 1970s that said what happens in the mitochondria is somehow linked directly to the heart and the vasculature. That makes no sense physiologically at all. The heart and blood vessels service the entire functioning of metabolism, the entire cell, not a subsegment of the cell. So it turns out that the best cardiovascular training you can do is the type of training that invokes the totality of metabolism to the most aggressive degree possible. And that just so happens to be properly performed resistance training of a high intensity. That's it. Okay. My mind's blown a little bit here, but this this is fantastic. We're going to talk a little bit about how this relates to body by science here in a second, but this is absolutely fantastic because I imagine the intensity is the absolute crucial component there. And so when we talk about body by science, I would love to talk a lot about sort of the speed between those exercises. But do you mind just touching on the big five that you mention in body by science, specifically what they are. And do you mind walking us through a typical workout? Sure. So the big five in the book was selected just for the purpose of being five big compound movements that involved a large um, territory of the body's musculature in each movement, such that you could cover the entire musculature of the body with these five movements. And the five movements were selected not only because of the musculature that they involved, but because of the simplicity of the movement. These are very basic linear movements involving multiple joints. So they're very easy to coordinate. You don't have to spend a lot of concentration on the technique. So that leaves much more of your mind free to focus on the intensity of the work, the aggressive nature of fatiguing yourself deeply and quickly. This is such a powerful stimulus for the body to make an adaptive response because it's threatening your most preserved biologic function. Movement is your most preserved biologic function. Without movement, you can't get food. You can't keep from becoming food. So when you train with resistance so that you start off at a certain level of strength, and under continuous load, you exert yourself so that that strength level follows, falls rapidly to the point where it can no longer move that resistance. You have invoked a very powerful stimulus because you have threatened movement. 
when you're able to do that with simple movements so that you can focus on that intensity, you're overcoming an instinct. Your body instinctually avoids that depth of fatigue. So you have to use your intellect and your willpower to overcome that instinct to go to that place that triggers that stimulus. So we selected these five movements because they were simple to perform and left you free to use your concentration on other more important elements, which is the effort. Um, so the movements are um, a compound row, which is a horizontal pulling movement, a chest press, which is a horizontal pushing movement, a pull down, which is an under grip, you know, a chin up like movement, which is um, a vertical plane pulling movement, and an overhead press, like a barbell military press, which is a vertical pushing movement, and finally a leg press. Those are the big five, and we chose them for their simplicity and that it covers the entire body. Someone doing those in rapid succession, average workout will take you about 12 minutes. And having experienced a deep level of fatigue in one movement successfully after another, it, I promise you it's all you can stand. So on this, going back to the intensity point, what? how do you set this up so that you have five exercises, you're going back to back. If you're in a regular gym where you may have somebody, that annoying guy who jumps in your motion and sort of gets in your way, are, is it? do you pre-set up the machines and just sort of jump as you can, or is there a little bit of rest period allowed in between exercises? Yeah, I mean, you can definitely do rest period allowed between exercises because, you know, the process we previously described of ramping anaerobic metabolism as fast as possible to overwhelm, to deliver substrate very quickly to the aerobic segment, you're going to push all metabolism within that set very, very adequately. If you have time to recover, that's okay because you're going to ramp right back up on the very next set. So I would not get too upset if, you know, some bonehead's playing on his iPhone on the machine that you set up for your next movement. If there is another acceptable machine that's open and you can go use it instead, that's fine. But in most commercial gym settings, finding a good piece is going to be probably just that one piece. So if some mm -hmm. bonehead gets in your way, it's okay to wait it out. You're not going to ruin the workout. The reason in my commercial facility that we move as rapidly as we do from one to the next is that the effect of compound row on chest press, the next movement, is that you can't use as much weight because of the accumulating fatigue and lactic acidosis, which sounds like not a good thing, but as someone gets stronger over time, it's actually beneficial because, frankly, on certain pieces of equipment, we're not going to run out of resistance as soon if we're invoking that kind of cumulative fatigue, and it really does give you a lot of metabolic bang for your buck. Um, most people, when they experience lactic acidosis, experience a rapid drop-off in their ability to perform. But your body can adapt to lactic acid and use it as afterburner fuel. Lactic mm -hmm. acid gets circulated back to the central vein of the liver. The liver undergoes gluconeogenesis, converts it back into glucose, and it's like a fuel injector to mm -hmm. someone appropriately adapted to that kind of exercise. 
Lactic acid is not an evil humor that's a byproduct of hard work. Lactic acid is a survival mechanism. When you're septic, you make lactic acid so that you can resynthesize glucose through your liver and not run out. I mean, it's a, it's a recycling process for extreme physiologic stress. And the degree to which you can adapt for that is useful. But if someone interrupts your workout, it's not like throw in the towel and go home kind of thing. Don't sweat it. It's not a big deal. Mm -hmm. So myself and a bunch of the guys listening are very into measurement and measuring our successes. Is the best thing to measure for this uh, time under load? Or should we be looking at tempo reps? What do you think is the best way to look at the, the big five? Well, it depends upon your circumstance and where you are. Um, if you have equipment that's the strength curves aren't perfect and there may be some friction, you may not be using a very slow cadence just out of necessity. So, you know, most equipment in a commercial gym, if you're going to be using a slow cadence, it may be a three to four second positive and a four to six second negative. In which case, counting reps is a, a very good measure of how you're doing and when you should progress weight. As you become more advanced, though, you're going to bump up against the limitations of the equipment. So you're going to fail to progress, not because you're not getting stronger, but because the equipment has enough of a sticking point where, as you fatigue, it doesn't allow you to demonstrate your improvement. At which point, you have to really shift your mindset to be more qualitative rather than quantitative. Mm -hmm. But by that point in training, you should have enough of an internal compass about your workout to know when you're doing well and when you're not. And that will happen kind of organically and express itself. Now, with more ideal equipment where you're using a really slow cadence, like in my shop, we use stopwatches and record time under load because four reps of a 10-10 cadence at one workout may be a minute and 14 seconds. But at the next workout, four reps may equal a minute 22, which is a significant performance improvement that would not be thin sliced enough to detect if we weren't using that. Mm -hmm. So it just kind of depends upon your circumstance. But for all your quantified self type people, I would tell you not to get too, too wrapped up in the quantitative aspect of the workout because most equipment or free weights that you're going to use are not going to thin slice the data enough for it to be meaningful to you. It's more important that you understand the underlying concept of aggressive muscular loading and deep fatigue and go after that in a qualitative way and have faith that your adaptive response will take care of the rest. This type of work seems to lend itself to machines. Uh, do you have a preference for machines over barbells or and dumbbells, or can both be used? Both can be used, and it depends upon the machines or equipment that are available to you. Mm -hmm. Now, having said that, if you're training calves, a you know one one-legged calf raise holding a dumbbell in your hand from strength curve to loading, there's no better movement, not even on a machine. Um, a barbell curl uh, performed appropriately um, is superior to almost any equipment that you can find. A lying tricep extension, you know, with is almost biomechanically perfect. So there are many free weight movements 
that are really, really well suited. Um, others have a more aggressive sticking point and can be problematic. Uh, a dumbbell or barbell bench press has a very aggressive sticking point where the shoulders and the elbows both reach 90 degrees. Mm -hmm. But I could say that a thing to do would be if you feel like the sticking point is stopping you from reaching the depth of fatigue you're after, you can do a set with your heavy work set weight, go to failure, which is going to occur at that sticking point, and then drop your weight by 40 to 50 percent and then work the bottom half from the very bottom range of motion to the sticking point until fatigue, take a brief respite, and then do the easier half from the top to the sticking point back up to fatigue. You get a lot more contraction volume, and you've worked your way around that sticking point by using fatigue to make to do the bottom half, take the fatigue from the bottom half to make the top half hard, and then just go to fatigue. So you can work around, the same thing would be true of a barbell squat, which has a bad sticking point. You can work around those things by just being a little bit creative and using the sticking point to your advantage by, you know, breaking up your reps that way. I'm laughing. I'm not sure if you can see me here laughing because that reminded me a lot of, uh, I used to do some training with the guys at Westside Barbell and one of their exercises was called tricep death. Uh, which involved a lot of those sort of partial move. I, I call them partial movements uh, on a bench press. And those were not fun after a while, that's for sure. What do you feel, and I've seen videos of you doing this, Dr. McGuff, what do you feel about the ARX because, or just machines like the ARX that may lend themselves to this type of exercise in sort of a much more quantified, well, I guess they, they do have the computer there, so they can quantify everything. If you have the access to them, um, they're great, particularly as it relates to quantification and being able to kind of, if you're a quantified self kind of guy, it's sort of a treasure trove because you can quantify the work that you're doing. You can see it represented graphically. You can compare performance over time. You can tell whether your recovery's been adequate um, based on your performance from one workout to the next. The sticking point issue is taken away. Aggressive loading, um, rapid and deep level of fatigue is brought on board. All of those are very, very good. The double-edged sword of that, though, is that it does allow potentially an overwhelming degree of intensity that is difficult to recover from, and you have to be self-disciplined in that regard. Mm -hmm. Number two is the graphic feedback can tempt you to invert the real purpose of the exercise. The purpose of the exercise is to create a deep level of fatigue quickly. It's not to generate the most force output on the screen. Mm -hmm. When you get in the game of trying to beat the machine, there's a way of making that graph look better by loading your bones and joints rather than the musculature just by a change in your behavior. And a lot of times people get so focused on making the graph look good that they will undermine, undermine the real purpose of exercise with the assumed purpose, which is to make that graph look better. Mm -hmm. But if someone can be either instructed or disciplined in that manner, you really can quantify your workout in a meaningful way. And that's kind of cool. Beautiful. On the recovery front, 
so the book sort of mentions once a week. I know we're all individual in terms of how fast do we recover. What do you use to sort of measure the the time where it's best for you to go back into the gym? Because I know for me, I, I and you've alluded to it, I'm one of those quantified self-geeks. HRV is a good indicator. But for you, what would you do? You can rely on that. I I really am a big fan of HRV for those sort of signals. I don't use it myself because I don't ask questions I don't want the answer to. <laughs> and as an emergency physician with a rotating schedule, it would never tell me it's time to train, so I just don't go there. Um, but, you know, a general sense of well-being, HRV, but also your workout record. If you were appropriately recovered, you should feel improved in improvement in performance, and you should show incremental increases in your strength in terms of weight used and, and time to fatigue. That should be improving at least to a gradual degree over time. And if it is, then you're barking up the right tree. For most people, by the fourth or fifth day, you're good to go. Um, if you wait till the seventh day, you've not lost ground. So most of my clients train every seventh day. Some people train twice a week. Some people train every four to five days, like a Monday, Friday, Wednesday rotation. Um, but it's not hard to figure out. If you're, if you're showing progress and you're feeling stronger workout by workout, you're doing it right. Dr. McGuff, I just want to say thank you so much uh, for, again for taking the time. Now, before we go, I wanted to actually thank you for something that I haven't, I haven't told you about this. And about a number of years back, my mother was diagnosed with osteopenia. And I've heard through anecdotally your body by science protocol specifically. And at that time, she wasn't weightlifting. And so what she did was she encompassed really a workout that was really the big five using an ARX and that mm -hmm. protocol. And as a result, was able to reverse her osteopenia. So I owe you a big debt of gratitude for that because that's, well, pretty, that's, that's pretty amazing. I tell you what, that makes my day to hear stuff like that. I mean, um, that, that's where the good stuff is. That's why I kind of stay hooked into all this stuff because it, it's so cool to hear something like that. And it, to, You know, being buff and being swole is one thing, but, but these kind of things – particularly for someone that's undergoing that kind of problem, it, it, it's a big, big deal. It's life-changing, and it, it means a lot. Mm -hmm. and, and to me, it means a lot, and to her, it means a lot. And to think it was something so simple as this, this style of resistance training that worked very well, and she does it once a week. It's not a huge yeah. time commitment at all. So uh, thank so you. Cool. Yeah, I'm glad to hear it. And now I want to hit you with some, usually it's a final four, but you already answered my first question, which is what is health to you? Uh, so I'm going to move on. I, I want to substitute that first question to uh, just a question about in general, because I'm going to Namibia for Christmas and I'm not sure exactly what the exercise equipment's going to be like in the middle of nowhere in Africa. The book to pick up on this in terms of using this style of protocol, maybe with either static holds or uh, body weight, is that the is, is that the Renex book that you mentioned? Or 
So in Ken Hutchins' book, Music and Dance, there is um, a good section describing time static contraction training. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good resource. But for if you're going to be in a resource um, deficient environment, I think the Project Kratos book by Drew Bay mm -hmm. is an excellent resource as well because not only does it show you how to use freehand or no equipment type exercise to get the stimulus that you need. It also shows you techniques for progressing and graduating the resistance over time that aren't immediately self-evident to you, you know, in terms of doing this kind of, and that's probably worthwhile having because it's pretty amazing what you can accomplish with no equipment whatsoever. And absolutely for those people that are working out in hotel rooms out all the time yeah. out there, this is probably a good resource too. Another good thing is if you just, uh, you know, go to drmcguff.com, there's a YouTube channel, you can click on there. There's a little, I did a brief video on time static contraction training. Mm -hmm. And just basically with, and also with infometrics, um, how with minimal equipment or a couple of yoga blocks and a yoga strap, um, you can really get yourself a hard, hard workout in a hotel room with very little equipment to speak of. Um, but th those are resources for a resource depleted environment to get a really good workout. And, and I'll, I'll link to those in the, the show notes because I know there's a number of guys listening that spend more time than not in hotel rooms. Yeah. And I'll tell you what, if, if you learn how to do these sort of protocols, you will never um, subject yourself to a hotel gym ever again. <laughs> Sounds great. Okay. To the rapid fire questions. Yeah. What what is your top trick for enhancing your focus? I would have to say limiting inputs. Okay. And do so, you mind just explaining that a little bit? I think you yeah. touched on it a little bit mm -hmm. earlier, but. Yeah. And again, I, I can't take credit for this. I would, I would really reference someone to investigate the art of learning by Josh Waitzkin. Beautiful book. Um, and I would reference them to go find the podcast interviews that Tim Ferriss has done with him on his blog. I listen to those over and over again, but there's one concept that he constantly refers to called smaller circles or smaller and smaller circles. And that's really to just cone down your focus as narrowly as possible by limiting inputs. And by inputs, I mean other people's opinions um, images and interactions on Facebook, Instagram, internet, YouTube. Don't bombard yourself with input all the time. You need that quiet space in order to kind of be able to focus and really connect with your true self and to um, spend some time to be able to, the real essence of focus, I think, is to have conscious control over subconscious processes. Mm -hmm. And you cannot do that if you have too many extrinsic inputs. So I would say by constraining inputs and really um, protecting your dead space is, is key to that. You may have just answered this, but what's your favorite book on high performance? Okay, so that would definitely be one of them, The Art of Learning. Um, but... I've, I've read that over a few times, but I've really listened to those podcasts over and over again. 
it it really makes a big big difference um, for me um, in terms of I mean probably the first thing I ever read was um, it's right here is uh, Psycho Cybernetics by Maxwell Maltz I read that between high school and college and it was the first concept I, I mean I had no concept of it when it was first presented to me that um, the power of the subconscious, the power of imagination. And it really made clear to me that it's much easier to act your way into a new way of thinking than it is to think your way into a new way of acting. Mm -hmm. And that book really kind of drove that home for me. In terms of a meditative practice, I'm almost embarrassed to say it, but back during my competitive athletic days, for meditation or the Silva method. Wow. Okay. From, uh, from Jose Silva, mm -hmm. which is which is very kind of woo woo and crazy when you read it, but their their mechanism of training the meditative process is just one that I took on early and it stuck with me. Um, so that one made a major change for me. Um, other things is things that kind of expose your cognitive errors, um, like the books by Nassim Taleb, yeah. um, I think are very useful. And another one that is really more about economics than anything, but really made me realize the interconnectedness of everything was um, Human Action by Ludwig von, Ludwig von Mises. He's, a, um, he's an economist, an Austrian mm -hmm. economist, um, but and this book is like agonizingly um, complex, but you don't even have to read the whole thing. You can open this thing to any random page, drop your finger on any sentence, <clears throat> and it's profound. And it's, it's a thick book, but every single word is so economized. Um, it, it's just something that you can pick up that makes you realize that economics and physiology are so connected. Mm -hmm. that you can draw principles from one to the other. The, the difference, you know, the connections between biology and economics are so profound that uh, it, I've probably developed more thinking about exercise physiology out of reading his economics text than anything else that I've ever encountered. Interesting. I'm going to have to order this one. This is great. <laughs> And Dr. McGuff, last question is, where can people find out more about you? Uh, probably the easiest way is just to hit uh, the website where I do all my consultation. And it's also got a subcategory that is for my training facility. And that's dr. Dr. McGuff, drmcguff.com. That links to the YouTube channel. Um, people can see what I'm up to on Instagram at ultimate underscore exercise underscore. Um, you can see me there. Um, I, everything I hit on Instagram also connects through Twitter. Um, but if you just go to drmcguff.com, all the links to everything are at that site, and you can find me there. We'll link to all of this in the show notes. But Dr. McGuff, yeah, thank you again. This has been so much fun for me. And a oh, wealth, well. wealth of learning here. I've got so many notes, and I'm, I hope I'm going to transcribe them into great show notes for people. But Awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a blast. And to all the superhumans listening out there, have an absolutely epic day. Superhumans.
Before you go, can I ask two favors? Did you enjoy that episode? If so, can you send me an email at podcast at decodingsuperhuman.com? Provide any feedback, positive or negative. I would love to hear from you. And for those of you who have really taken advantage of that, you know I respond to each email. Secondly, if you did enjoy the episode, can you head on over to iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, any one of your favorite podcast listening platforms, and give Decoding Superhuman a five-star rating. It would really be appreciated. And then finally, for those of you who are looking at taking an informed approach to health, head on over to decodingsuperhuman.com. Check out what we have going on over there. And if you want to schedule a free 15-minute discovery call with me, you're going to have that option. Superhumans, have an absolutely epic day. And remember, as always, choose health. Thank you.